0: Hello, everybody.
1: Hi, we're back with The Haunted.
0: We're back with the spooky episode, honeys. It's a haunted, it's a creepy, it's a gnarly motherfucker at Misery Manor. But before we get started, light those candles, get settled in your bath, and let's get this show on the motherfucking road. Hey, guys. Hi. We are back with a haunted episode.
1: (laughs) Haunted mental asylums and mental hospitals.
0: So um, we got a lot of great feedback from not only the dolls episode, but also the haunted Ouija board episodes. So we ordered a bunch of books from um, Zachary Knowles,
1: oh yeah we talked about him last
0: episode yeah so he has a bunch of fantastic like story time books so basically we're taking these stories and just reiterating them to you all um but like emily said this one's real haunted hospitals and mental asylums um
1: so this is your good night story about radley sanatorium from pretty little liars yes
0: so <laughs> these i haven't read these either so emily is the ones that did the research and like picked out the story so i'm gonna be shocked just as well as you are and if i can't pronounce a word it's because it's my first time seeing it
1: honestly it's just some of the names of the hospitals are in different countries so yeah. it's like oh, that's I true. like a couple of them i know i'm gonna say wrong but that's how i read it the whole time yeah. so that's, that's its all, name now
0: that's its name now okay cool so l- should we get started
1: i think we should because there are some of them are a little longer right. but we also have to keep in mind like the first part of these are kind of true crime because true. of the heinous things that happen in some of these hospitals are just, I
0: mean, right
1: crazy. Um, right. Anyway, okay, so let's just, let's go. You go
0: first. Okay. Are you ready? I'm, let me get the correct page really quickly. Okay, cool. So I'm going to start with the Waverly, Waverly Hills Sanatorium. So, in the early 1900s America, the the country was ravaged by tuberculosis, which is a deadly and incurable disease. The bacterial infection causes painful growths in the lungs that make it increasingly difficult to breathe, resulting in a slow and difficult death. Called the White Plague, the highly contagious disease can overcome entire families, and in some cases, entire towns. Something, anything needed to be done to contain it and quickly. Fast forward to 1910, when the Waverly Hills Sanatorium was established on a high hill in Jefferson County, Kentucky. A hospital for the treatment of TB patients, doctors and nurses did their best to keep it as self-sufficient as possible to limit the risk of infection spreading the surrounding community. They maintained their own essential services and hospital workers weren't allowed to transfer for fear of spreading the disease. As soon as Waverly Hills opened, it was overrun with sick patients. The hospital was rebuilt and expanded to meet demand, including the addition of a children's pavilion. This ward was designed to house children with TB, as well as the children of sick patients who had no one else to care for them diagnosis of TB was often meant death this was long before the days of antibiotics doctors were at a loss on how to treat the disease fresh air rest and proper nutrition were thought to be the best treatments especially fresh air it was important that patients were often placed on open patios or in front of open windows regardless of the weather fresh air was important was more important than staying out of the snow. As the illness progressed, more desperate measures were required. Exposing a patient's lungs to ultraviolet light in a so called sunroom was one common treatment. An alternative method involved placing balloons in a patient's lungs and inflating them to encourage their lungs to breathe. Then there was a last resort, as the doctors called it, surgically removing some ribs and the surrounding muscle tissue to ease the pressure on the lungs. Patients are patients are rarely survived it. For cases such as these, nurses had the death tunnel, a 500-foot chute used to lower dead bodies out of the hospital into the bottom of the hill. It wasn't just used for convenience, it helped protect the other patient's mental health. The sight of so many bodies leaving through the front door would have been devastating to patient morale. It was business as usual at Waverly Hills until it closed in 1961, so about 30 years. The new antibiotic treatments managed to do what UV exposure and removing body parts could not, and TB was almost completely eradicated. Unfortunately for the patients of Waverly Hills, many of them entered the hospital by the front door and left via the death tunnel. Keeping up with this disease left most records in disorder with no one, so no one knows exactly how many people died within Waverly Hills' walls. Speculators say 63,000, though historians opt for more modest at 8,212 deaths. So that's a big difference. After the TB hospital had closed, Waverly was reopened as Woodhaven Geriatric Center. No one paid too much attention to what went on in the facility after that, but maybe they should have. In 1982, Woodhaven was closed by the state because of patient neglect. For 20 years, Waverly Hills lay vacant. Well, almost. Despite its disused, crumbling walls and increasingly decrepit state, the homeless flocked to the Waverly Hills for a dry place to sleep at night. It also became a favorite haunt of vandals and partiers looking for a thrill. That's when the story started. The paranormal sightings at Waverly Hills began as whispers in the Jefferson County community, mysterious door slamming, lights on when there was no power to the building, and the sounds of footsteps in empty rooms and disembodied voices. No one paid the ramblings of the hoodlums and the homeless much mind, but the stories became so frequent they could no longer be ignored. They even piqued the interest of Louisville, ghost hunter society who came to investigate the hospital and bring its secret into the light. Since then, the sanatorium has been dubbed one of the most haunted places in the world. Maybe that's because you don't even have to venture inside the building to spot something eerie. Countless people have seen, um, have seen the same desperate, spectacle woman running out of the entrance of the Waverly Hills facility. Witnesses saw her hands and legs bound in chains, blood dripping from her wrists and ankles. She screams desperately for someone to help her, then disappears into thin air. Could she have been one of the many victims of TB who died at the hospital? Or one of the tortured residents of the prison-like elderly home that followed? No one can say. One thing's for sure, the waiting room isn't alone. The spectacle, Appearances of countless children, likely young victims of TB, still roam throughout the hospital. Many visitors have heard the sounds of children laughing and playing on the building's roof, even singing nursery rhymes like, Ring around the Rosie. When visitors investigated the strange sounds, no one was to be found. It makes sense that the spirits of children might linger on the roof. They were often taken up there for heliotherapy, where doctors expose them to the sun and fresh air in hopes of alleviating TB symptoms. More sinister and evil children can be found deeper in the building. On the third floor, the ghost of a little girl has been seen so many times that visitors have given her the name, Mary. Mary appears in different ways to different people, maybe depending on her mood. Sometimes visitors find her harmlessly, though eerily, playing in the hall with the ball. Sometimes she's just lurking around and watching you. The account of one terrified visitor shows a different side of Mary. The person found a more disturbing Mary in one of the rooms on the third floor and claimed after that, that Mary wasn't normal. The little girl appeared to have no eyes, just black gaping sockets where there once were eyes. Witnesses report that the visitors ran screaming from the building and refused to return. Many believe her story since other witnesses have also reported seeing the same girl peering down at them from the windows on the third floor. Mary's not the only little one roaming Waverly Hills upper levels. Just one floor up lurks the ghost of Timmy. He's been seen and discussed so much over the years that it's hard to parcel out fact from fiction, but legend has it that he was seven years old when he died at Waverly from TB and he's been there ever since. Like Mary, Timmy has also been playing with a ball in the hallways but has become more famous for it since it's the only thing he ever seems to want to do. Visitors often bring balls with them to the fourth floor in an attempt to communicate with him. Sometimes the balls seem to move on their own. Oftentimes you can hear a ball bouncing on the second floor and the sound of a boy's laughter. Several photos taken on the fourth floor have appeared on the internet showing the eerie face of a young boy peering around the corner. Dying at such a young age, Timmy will forever be a child, one who just wants to play, even if he can't manage to depart the hospital where he languished and passed away. A few ghostly children might seem heartless enough, but on the fifth floor, never fails to horrify. The floor looks normal enough with a couple of nurses' stations and patients' rooms. Legend has it that the fifth floor is where the doctors housed the TB patients who had gone mad from suffering, though they could not say for sure. Reports of strange shapes, disembodied voices, and unexplained sounds are more common on this floor than any other. Hands down, the most mysterious and ghostly part of the floor, possibly even in the entire building, is room 502. Even just approaching it, visitors often feel incredibly uncomfortable, overwhelmed with a sense of despair. That would make sense considering the sad history of the room. Legend has it that in 1928, a nurse was found in the room hung by her neck from the light fixture, suicide. The woman had become pregnant out of wedlock by one of the doctors or superintendents of the hospital, no one knows which. So depression overtook her And rather than admit the shame of being pregnant and not married, she took her own life and that of her unborn child. But that wasn't the end of the despair of room 502. In 1932, another nurse jumped out of the window, plunging to death. Unlike the previous woman, no one knows why the nurses would have taken their own life. People at this time speculated that she may have been pushed out. No one was ever able to solve this mystery. It would seem that one or both of these nurses who who lost their lives in room 502 still linger today. Some have witnessed the complete apparition of a woman in white lingering in the doorway of room 502. Others have seen strange shadows and heard whispers. One thing's for sure, room 502 is not a welcoming place. Often the door closes on its own. Many have heard a clear, firm voice saying, get out. Visitors can't help but wonder if that's what the nurse heard before she was pushed out of the window. Nowadays, it's not possible to wander through Waverly Hills on your own. You have to be on a guided tour. With Waverly's long history of disease, suffering, patient neglect, and ultimately death, the residents never stop trying to make their own story heard by those who listen closely enough. Recently, the hospital was purchased by a private couple who planned to convert it into a four-star hotel for ghost lovers and thrill-seekers. Let's go. <laughs> now the big question is, will the nurses allow anyone staying in room 502 to last the night? Ooh. A lot of
1: stuff happened. I know, but I was making faces while you were reading it because the balloon therapy that mm-hmm. they did. Who?
0: They still do that.
1: They put a damn balloon in Mm -hmm. your...
0: And they do it for stomach surgeries as well.
1: Okay, that is wild to me. I, like, remember reading that part and was just like...
0: "Ah." Like, no, ma'am. No. Okay, so your next story.
1: Okay, so my hospital is called Old Chingi Hospital. Built while death and destruction were rife, war hospitals always seemed to carry the most gruesome histories. Case in point, Old Changi Hospital. Originally called the Royal Air Force Hospital, Old Changi Hospital was built by the British in 1935 to care for colonial and local troops in Singapore. That might have been it for the tale of Old Changi, but with conflict comes war and with war comes conquest. In 1942, the Japanese attacked Singapore, taking control of the country and hospital. Suddenly, that was once a place to care for the british soldiers and their allies became a prison camp where many met their deaths old Chingi became a repository to store the british australian indian and malaysian soldiers as well as any troublesome singaporeans with anti-japanese sentiments the hospital turned prison camp was run by the kempitai the japanese secret police known worldwide for their brutal tactics prisoners of war were regularly submitted to torture of the cruelest and most unusual varieties one australian soldier recounted his interrogation the interviewer produced a small piece of wood like a meat skewer pushed that into my left ear and tapped it with a small hammer I think I fainted sometime after it went through the drum. I remember the last excruciating sort of pain, and I must have gone out for some time because I was revived with a bucket of water. Eventually it healed, but of course I couldn't hear with it. I have never been able to hear since. The Japanese used scare tactics on those they allowed to live. They placed iron stakes outside of the YMCA and Cathay buildings of Old Changi. They then displayed the severed hands of executed prisoners on the stakes for all to see. Thousands of people died at the hospital before the Japanese lost and the war ended. As the hospital changed hands back to the British, many of the Japanese soldiers were executed there in turn. Old Changi, which was supposed to be a place of healing, witnessed a lot of death on both sides. In 1975, the British withdrew from Singapore, and the hospital truly returned to its original purpose, serving the sick and wounded from Singapore's army as well as the general public. Old Chinggi was finally abandoned in the 1990s as newer facilities were built. While old Chingi's violent history is well documented, the public has also come forward with stories of abnormal and unexplainable occurrences at the abandoned hospital by the thousands. It is considered the most haunted place in Singapore, and the locals confirm it by fervently warning visitors to stay away from the area at night. Those brave, foolish enough to visit commonly claimed to have seen apparitions or shadows of people hearing disembodied screams, witness strange erratic lights and scented phantom scents. Some claim to see a small boy throughout the hospital, always found sitting and staring into nothingness. The boy looks sad and those who see him feel a strong sense of the emotion, even after leaving the building. The most horrific stories come from the numerous people who reported stumbling across a gory bloodbath, the mass execution of Japanese soldiers. As the stories of strange sights and sound at the Old Changi continue to pour in, the hospital has become a regular attraction for teenagers and thrill-seekers. Singaporean native Andreas Chan was once one such teenager. She visited Old Changi with her friends quite a few times when she was young. Most of their visits consisted of the usual thrills, dank, dark rooms, and the strange smells that piqued their curiosity more than their fears. But what happened on one visit had them leaving the hospital with chills down their spines. Two of the four girls were exploring the second floor when they heard a loud bang on the ceiling of the first floor. They ran over to the source of the sound and stomped their feet on the floor, thinking their friends had been banging on the ceiling to scare them. They heard another loud bang in return. After, they ran downstairs to confront their friends and found the first floor empty. What's more, the ceiling was so high it would have been impossible for anyone to bang on it without a ladder. Chan and her friend later found their other friends on the second floor. They had been exploring another room and had no idea what sounds the other girls were talking about. Events took a turn for the scarier when one of the girls mentioned hearing a voice complaining that they were making too much noise even though there was no one else in the building but the four of them. The voice had offered this warning in Hokkien, I have no idea if I said that right, the main Chinese dialect spoken in Singapore when the hospital first opened. Andreas Chan's account is just one of the thousands of strains and unusual happenings at Old Chengi, the notion that the hospital was haunted became so popular that a crew produced a mockumentary film on the premises called Haunted Changi. The film was released in 2010 and while it was meant to be a bit humorous, the real ghosts of Changi weren't laughing. Their crew was in for some real paranormal activity that they hadn't bargained for. Many complained of hearing loud bangs from empty parts of the hospital disembodied voices, and groping of unseen hands. Several reported seeing the apparition of a woman with what appeared to be a black aura. The most ironic and disturbing part about it was that also they also managed to catch a shadow person on video while filming the movie. They decided to leave the video of the lurking figure in the final cut of the film, lending some unintended credibility to the message of Haunted Changi. After garnering so much spooky and unexpected interest, many attempts have been made to plan a reconstruction of the dead and decaying hospital. All have fallen through for one reason or another and the historic building lies vacant to this day. To some, it's a paranormal haven sure to leave visitors with chills down their spines and sights they can't unsee. For others, the building is a monument of war and perseverance. No matter which camp you're in, old Changi, and maybe it's Ghost, is a testament to a particularly gruesome and unforgiving time in human history.
0: Old Changi. I know I'm saying that wrong. No, I mean, it just sounds like a rapper's name. Oh, yeah. And at first I thought you were trying to say Shanghai, so I almost stopped you, but then I thought it's actually Changi.
1: Yeah, or like Changi. Changi, yeah, something like that. I mean, I'm not from Singapore, Okay.
0: All right, so the next story is called Beechworth Lunatic Asylum. By the late 1860s in Australia, Victoria's only mental institution was bursting at the seams with mentally ill patients. In response, the Mayday Hills Lunatic Asylum was open to the house and treat up to 1,200 patients a day. Getting admitted was a simple affair, requiring only two signatures from friends or relatives who wanted you locked up. Getting out was much more difficult. Later renamed the Beechworth Lunatic Asylum, Mayday Hills was open for 128 years and brings with it a history of strange medical practices and care. The first superintendent himself may have been a bit off. He believed that the moon caused insanity and refused to go outside at nighttime without an umbrella. Housing a mixture of 600 men and 600 women, the Beechworth Lunatic Asylum was almost always full. Though whether the patients deserved to be there is a different story. Many of the patients were not actually clinically insane. In order to leave the hospital, a patient would need eight signatures certifying that they were fit for the outside world. Most of the doctors, nurses, and caretakers at Beechworth viewed their patients as liabilities beyond cure and lacked the care and compassion of today's caregivers. As a result, many completely sane people spent their lives locked up in Beechworth's expansive wards. While freedom might have been a futile endeavor, don't know if I said that word right, access to the latest treatments for insanity were in abundance. Beechworth was equipped with the latest tools for handling and treating the insane. Doctors had access to a fully equipped lab for operations, autopsies, and any other experiments they might like to try. The shelves of the lab were said to be filled with jars of body parts from unlucky patients, though after a fire had damaged the ward, the jars were removed. Before the 1850s, psychiatric medication was unavailable, so shackles and straitjackets were often used to help control patients' aggressive and unruly behavior. The gravilla wing of the hospital was home to the electroshock treatment facility, an incredibly routine treatment for the clinically insane. No one would dream of treating a patient with electroshock therapy today. The shocks were strong and often forced patients' bodies to contract into unnatural positions, snapping bones, ligaments, and teeth in the process, almost like a demonic possession. For for good reason, the Gravilla Wing was part of the hospital that all patients feared the most. In stories still... Circulate about mass treatments where almost everyone in the hospital was shocked in group sessions. If they weren't insane before, they certainly were afterwards. No one seems to know exactly how many patients died in the Beechworth Lunatic Asylum, though it's estimated to be between 3,000 and 9,000. Most left this world as victims of their illness, wasting away, taking their own lives, or suffering the effects of aggressive treatments. The less troubled and more docile uh, patients died of old age, though a few deaths were a lot more suspicious. An example of this was the death of a nameless Jewish woman committed in the women's wing of Beechworth. She kept to herself mostly and didn't cause any trouble as long as she had her cigarettes. People would often find her sitting in a high story window smoking. One day, another patient wanted to have some of her cigarettes. Maybe they asked politely at first, no one could say. But the woman was never one for sharing and wouldn't give any up. One thing led to another and suddenly the Jewish woman found herself tumbling out of the window to her death. No one knows what ultimately became of the other patient, but everyone remembers what happened to the Jewish woman. They left her body lying in the grass for for two days before moving her. You see, in Jewish tradition, no one is allowed to touch the deceased until a rabbi has seen the body. Since the closest rabbi had to come all the way from Melbourne, the woman's gruesome end was a sight for all to see for more than 48 hours. It's possible the woman didn't appreciate such steadfast observance in her religious beliefs. In more recent years, many have reported seeing the eerie outline of the woman lurking where her body fell so many years before. Others claim to have seen a woman's face in the window where she loved to sit and smoke, staring back at them. Escaping from Beechworth was nearly impossible. Though that didn't stop people from trying, the most unruly patients were locked in cells while the others were kept on the grounds by twistedly named Haha ha Walls. That's so that's what they named the walls, ha, ha walls. High trenched walls that no patient could ever hope to climb. Despite these securities, one man disappeared from the compound long ago. The asylum staff and surrounding communities searched desperately to find him. No one wanted a committed lunatic roaming the streets. Eventually, they had to give him up as a loss. Then, several weeks after the abandoned search, someone found the asylum's pet dog, Max, happily gnawing on a meaty bone. On closer inspection, Max's snack was the remains of a human leg. The asylum staff conducted another search by the gatehouse where the leg was found. A suspicious looking shadow and horrific smell helped searchers uncover the patient's body in a tree. The body had managed to decompose so much that the leg had fallen to the ground for Max to find and eat. No one ever discovered how the patient actually died in the tree, but many since claimed to have seen the man's ghost lurking near the asylum's entrance. He never did get out. An actim- sorry. An active asylum for 128 years, Beechworth was witness to a lot of pain and suffering by patients before it was decommissioned in 1995. Now it has been partially converted into a satellite campus for La Trobe University, a hotel and a tour facility. However, many parts including the Grivia Wing, the one that was home to the electric shock facility, have been left unused and dilapidated. Since most of the asylum has been transformed and is now full of guests, paranormal sightings are everywhere. Matrim Sharp was a care, was a caretaker at the asylum and had been spotted by so many witnesses that she can't be ignored. In life, she was known for her compassionate care of patients, which was uncharis- uncharacteristic in her time. In death, she seems to be carrying on her routine. Matron Sharp was most often seen with patients in the Grivia Wing comforting them before the electric shock therapy. Those who spot her often feel calm and comforted despite the overwhelming chill that fills the room when she enters. That said, it's probably easier for Matron Sharp to to comfort a person who's just seen a ghost than a patient who's about to get the shock of his life. The Asylum's Recreation Hall was one of the few places where patients could relax, perform plays, concerts, and attend Sunday Mass. In 1938, it was converted into a cinema for inmates. As one of the few places that regularly brought joy to the lives of prisoners, it makes sense that they would visit the Recreation Hall in death. What doesn't make any sense is that the most commonly sighted specter in the wing is a desperate-looking girl who approaches people and tries to talk to them. Others have seen the ghost of an elderly man gazing longingly out of the window of the bell tower. Clearly, Beechworth's history holds a lot more than meets the eye, as some of the former inmates are trying to communicate. Even more disturbing is that, despite the fact that the asylum was only for adults, numerous workers at Beechworth have heard the distinct sounds of children laughing throughout the hospital, but were never able to track down where the voices were actually coming from. Others claim to have felt someone pulling on their clothes and poking them in the ribs or pulling their hair in the bijou theater. What secrets does this asylum hold that children would choose to linger in such a place? Or maybe they can't leave? Tours of the hospital never fail to spook some people. Guests often described seeing a serious looking man following them through the hallways. Behind the man, two other strange figures followed, joking and laughing. Some say the serious man is a former doctor. That makes sense with his stern attitude. He could be one of the therapists, pondering his next experimental treatment on his way to the laboratory. But the identities of the, of the men following him remain a mystery. Guests of the hotel also frequently report hearing footsteps in the hallway that belong to no one. In tapping on the old glass windows, Beechworth is a haunting ground for doctors, patients, and workers alike. Not spooked enough, the Beechworth Ghost Tour is the most popular in mainland Australia. Go and see it for yourself. I'm booking my trip right now. I would totally go. Yeah.
1: Metropolitan State Hospital. When Boston's Metropolitan State Hospital opened in 1927, no one had ever seen a psychiatric institution so expansive before. With an administrative building, medical and surgical facility, acute and chronic care buildings, psychiatric hospital for children and adolescents, staff housing, morgue, and power plant, the grounds spanned over three different towns in the sprawling Boston region it was made large out of necessity but just two years after opening the hospital had already exceeded its capacity of just over a thousand patients of course the hospital had to have its own cemetery to comment accommodate such an overcrowded facility. But mental hospitals have a patient limit for a reason, and the deaths at the Met appeared to be frequent enough that the workers didn't even bother making proper markers for patient graves. By the end of the hospital's operation, the cemetery ended up with 480 anonymous graves and many more with no marker at all. Bodies sunken beneath the ground, their name and stories lost forever. Among the missing are likely the bodies of 24 child patients, buried on the grounds in the 1960s insanity in children had remained the most elusive mental illness for doctors at the time the story goes that they were given a medication called strontium mixed with their milk as an attempt to quell their unruly behavior instead they were slowly being poisoned to death the overcrowding and underqualified hospital staff at the met continued to take their toll in later years though we can't see exactly what melvin wilson's motives were when he murdered co-patient Anne marie Davy, it was 1978 and davy went missing without a trace no one knew what to think of it for two months until staff found a hatchet and pieces of davy's clothing with wilson even more disturbing he had been carrying around seven of davy's teeth Because it was pretty clear what had happened, the staff didn't bother to investigate further. It wasn't until state mental health workers filed 19 reports of negligence that the Met left the authorities get involved. Two years after Davies' disappearance, Wilson led investigators to her three graves. You see, Wilson had chopped her to pieces and buried her in three different places in the hospital grounds. Though after so much time, it was difficult to piece her back together and rumors still fly that parts of her are still out there buried in other secret places at the hospital that Wilson didn't bother to tell anyone about. He was later transferred to a more secure facility and the Met Forever wore the new nickname, the Hospital of the Seven Teeth. With such a long and sinister past, it's no wonder that patients and staff alike began reporting unexplainable events even when the Met was operational. The most frequent sightings were strange shadows that seemed to pass through the walls and halls, appearing in locked rooms as as if they owned the place, then disappearing into the shadows. Too many times, nurses heard what sounded like a patient's desperate screams only to find no one around. The voice was completely disembodied. Though none of that was as frightening as seeing the figures of long dead patients appearing in their old rooms. For the workers it had happened frequently enough to make them question their own mental state. One unique feature of the hospital was the maze of underground tunnels. They were originally designed to help people move throughout the hospital during bad weather, though they weren't used often. The tunnels were lit by only a few light bulbs placed at a distance throughout the passage. Many staff reported feeling hands grab at their feet, faces, and backs when they, were, when they walked through the darker areas of a tunnel, but were never able to see anyone there. The feeling of unseen hands frightened workers frequently enough that the tunnels were eventually repurposed for storage. People avoided them after that, though a company of contractors who later had to work in the tunnels mysteriously quit, refusing to go down again and offering no explanation. In 1992, the hospital closed for good. At an alarming rate, it became dilapidated, filled with a maze of rotting wards, mildewed plaster, asbestos, collapsed ceilings, and waterlogged tunnels. Even after the hospital shut down, the tunnels were filled with all sorts of beds, chairs, and equipment left dripping and rotting in the echoing darkness. Most upsetting, the tunnels were left filled with patients' belongings, even children's shoes. No one knew why they would be there. Were patients living down there? As the hospital became more sinister-looking, residents of the surrounding towns began to take more interest in the strange reports by the staff and patients who used to live there. Despite being baracked off from the public, thrill-seekers frequently began visiting the hospital of the 17th. It would seem that the spirits were becoming more vocal than before, now that their home had been abandoned. Heavy doors would slam for no reason and disembodied whispers drifted down the hallway. More than one Boston local admitted that at times they felt as if they were experiencing the actual emotions of some long-lost patient. They also developed eerie memories of hospital procedures and practices they could never have witnessed or known about before. With so many unmarked graves in the cemetery, not to mention Anne Marie Davies' remaining pieces, it's no wonder that the grounds are considered more haunted than the building itself. Many people believe that the tormented spirits of patients buried in unmarked graves still lurk lost on the grounds. These believers might be only onto something, as just a few years ago, more than 15 people called the police for what they described as a woman trespassing near the building, except that she was glowing blue. By the time police arrived, the blue ghost was nowhere to be found, but the 15 witnesses remained adamant in what they saw. She was lurking near the entrance and appeared to be gardening, they all said. Since the Metropolitan State Hospital became one of the world's scariest places, People began recording all sorts of disembodied whispers and unexplainable apparitions that are too clear to deny. But the crumbling and rotting hospital made for a sore sight for Boston and surrounding towns while the mysterious sightings on the grounds continued to frighten locals and attract ghost hunters. By 2007, the hospital was completely demolished to make room for a complex of condos. It would seem that the eerie sounds, unexplained sightings, and desperate grabbing from the former residents were at an end. The stories and messages from the hospitals of Seven Teeth were no longer heard, but then again, the cemetery and every unidentified soul within it still linger to tell their tale.
0: The hospital of Seven Teeth?
1: I know, and like the fact that like her body was like in so many places, when did he hatch like chop her up is what I want to know.
0: I don't fucking know, but the fact that a ghost wants to garden, I think is the cutest thing.
1: I know, and she was glowing
0: blue. She's like, I'm blue. If I was green, I would die. Good Uh, story. (laughs) My God. (laughs) Wolf
1: Manor. Wolf Manor was never your typical sanitarium and convalescent home. It was actually built as a large private home for Italian immigrant Tony Andriotti in Clovis, California, in 1922. He ultimately couldn't afford the mansion and lost it. The building didn't become a home to treat the terminally ill until 1935 when it was renamed Clovis Avenue Sanitarium. The 8,000 square foot mansion could only hold 100 to 150 patients at a time, but lax regulations and even weaker enforcement allowed the owners to house many more than that was safe. Clovis Avenue Sanitarium was always so crowded that patients were regularly forced to sleep in the halls. According to historians, there were often 20 patients assigned to one nurse.
0: Damn, them are some busy nurses.
1: Yes. The sanitarium sank further and further into a state of chaos over the years. People would visit only to find disturbing scenes of patients laying naked in the hallways or finding them tied to their bed or a toilet. Oh, yeah.
0: Not your toilet.
1: Not my toilet staff were completely overwhelmed and discussion of suicide and murder permeated the mansion and its patients possibly in an attempt to quell dangerous overcrowding and lack of staff control a hospital wing for mental disorders was added on in 1954. that did little to stem the alarmingly high death rate at clovis avenue as such a small facility it's astounding that thousands died there during its operation With no morgue and every available corner of the manor occupied by patients' beds and supplies, the storing of the deceased became a problem. It was commonly known by locals and confirmed by historians that dead bodies would pile up in the basement, sometimes stacked eight high before someone came to pick them up.
0: Uh, A dead body sandwich?
1: Yes. Yes. As national health standards began to improve, it became clear that Clovis Avenue Sanitarium would never be a suitable facility. In 1992, it finally shut down, leaving behind a cringe-worthy history of overcrowding and mistreatment. And so, the Andriotti mansion lay quiet until local entrepreneur Todd Wolf bought the building in 1997 and renamed it Wolf Manor. Wolf saw the property for what it was a spooky testament to a chilling history so you turned it into so he turned it into a haunted attraction called scream if you can running a successful haunted attraction wolf hired staff to dress in scary costumes and frighten visitors what the workers never realized was how frightened they would become themselves things started happening but i didn't want to tell anybody one time i felt a breath of air on my neck And another, I was touched on my lower back, said Wolf. The owner was also bombarded by complaints of unexplainable occurrences from his staff. One claimed to have been pulled backwards into a room, only to find the room empty. No one was there. Obviously. It became a common occurrence for workers to quit without notice, claiming that too many creepy things kept happening to them. The strangest story of an unexplainable occurrence came directly from the Clovis Police Department. They received and responded to numerous 911 calls and alarms from the mansion, only to find no one there and no apparent emergency. The strangest part is that as a haunted house attraction, the building had not been equipped with an alarm system or a telephone. Who in the world was calling? More importantly, how were the calls going through? Visitors to the Halloween attraction were obviously in the mood for some haunted thrills, but many got a lot more than they bargained for. Guests regularly reported feeling chills and being shoved by someone lurking unseen. The worst affected found themselves inexplicably sick to their stomachs and lightheaded. The manner also seemed to come with a cast of characters that Wolf never hired to scare anyone seen so often that they were given names by the guests. Mary, the figure of an elderly woman can be found lurking the halls. Many others see Emily, a young girl who doesn't belong.
0: No, you sure don't.
1: A few others have seen a figure that is difficult to describe. They call him... Me. (laughs) They call him Man Baby. Oh, shit. (laughs) And left in a hurry.
0: Oh, fuck.
1: I literally wrote, nope. The unwanted disturbances of staff and guests became enough that Wolf, an overall skeptic, enlisted the help of a psychic to inspect the home. Once they offered their opinion that the mansion was a hotbed of paranormal activity, ghost hunters came far and wide to see for themselves. What followed was hundreds of EVP recordings, photographs and videos of unexplained figures and apparitions, and disembodied voices that make your hair stand on end. Wolf Manor continued as a successful haunted house for some time, where staged attraction and hired characters became secondary to the frightening occurrences the mansion produced itself. But Scream If You Can came to a halt in 2004 because of noise complaints. Wolf kept the building but lay vacant and quiet for the most part. Its popularity as one of the most haunted spots in the western U.S. attracted many vandals interested in the building's frightening history. Then in 2011, the city of Clovis decided the building was frightening in more than one way. Wolf Manor's state of disrepair, including cracking, dry rot, and broken windows had made it unsafe to occupy. It had also been labeled a hotspot. Police were constantly putting out unexplained fires on the property reporting 96 police calls regarding the mansion since 2008. It was never explained why the fires kept occurring. The groundskeeper said that the break-ins had reduced considerably over the years. Could it be the work of trapped spirits hoping for a way out of the hospital where so many people suffered and lost their lives? If that's the case, the city of Clovis heated their message and demolished Wolf Manor in November of 2014. For those who believe, the hope is that with the teenage revelers gone and the building demolished, the overcrowded spirits of Clovis Avenue Sanitarium can finally rest. Freed from the beds they were once chained to and the basement where their bodies laid forgotten. That is... So basically
0: like the the haunted attraction was, obviously there was people hired to do the scaring but Uh some of them were the, the spirits of the people that I've were once yeah. there, right?
1: And then some of the people that were working there, like as actors and mm-hmm. stuff, quit because they were of so the terrified that they were experiencing. Oh,
0: yeah. Head to the no, to the no, no, no.
1: Can we talk about man, baby?
0: Okay, I'm thinking of a big man with a diaper and he's like, <laughs> yeah,
1: you should play that. You do it
0: well. Bitch, I ain't a man. Uh- <laughs> well, what am I? I meant I'm not a baby. No. <laughs> Okay, this one's called Trans-Allegheny Lunatic Asylum. The town of Weston, West Virginia began construction on an insane asylum in 1858. The project, powered by prison labor, was an undertaking and took a very long time. Construction had to halt for the Civil War and resumed again in 1862. The hospital was built on 666 acres of land, sign of the devil, As it was common knowledge at this time that pollutants of the cities were the main cause of insanity. Fresh air and open spaces would be the most advanced treatment offered to the mentally ill. The goal of the Trans-Allegheny Lunatic Asylum was self-sufficiency complete with a farm, dairy, waterworks, and a cemetery. The second largest hand-cut stone building in the world, the Kremlin in Russia was larger, The hospital opened its doors officially in 1864. Per necessity, a separate section for African Americans was completed in 1873. Despite such expansive grounds, the Trans Allegheny was designed to hold only 250 people. But that soon changed. By 1880, it held 717 patients, By 1938, it was up to 1,601 patients. There were more than 1,800 patients in 1948. The patient population peaked at 2,400 in 1950. So serious overcrowding issue here. According to a 1938 report by a medical organization, the hospital was home to epileptics, alcoholics, drug addicts, and non educated mental defectives maybe the maybe they forgot to mention or maybe it was in later years that the hospital also housed children with down syndrome diabetes disabled veterans and nowhere else to go people with syphilis before the adverted penicillin and couples with aids who had their own personal apartment were all here As it turns out, fresh air and distance from the hustle and bustle of the cities were likely the kindest treatments offered at the hospital. Frontal lobotomies and electroshock therapy were commonly provided for the most difficult patients, helping them to calm down or at least instilling enough fear in them that they would comply. Like many giant institutions at that time, overcrowding started to take its toll very early on. The Charleston Gazette wrote a series of exposés about the hospital in 1948, describing poor sanitation and the lack of supplies, furniture, lighting, and heating. By the 70s and 80s, things managed to get even worse. Despite a relative decrease in patient population, reports of patients killing other patients passed without investigation, and female nurses and staff were often assaulted. One nurse went missing, only to be found dead at the bottom of an unused staircase nearly two months later. Doctors and staff started pulling out all the stops after that. Patients who could not be controlled were now locked in cages. Ew. It's pretty clear that no one will ever know the full extent of patient mistreatment during Trans-Allegheny's long history. Records from the hospital are amazingly incomplete. Many patients who checked in never seem to check out. In the hospital's private cemetery, headstones are missing. Others are just unnumbered bricks, leaving no clues about their occupants. Hundreds are said to have died in the hospital, though, with such shoddy record keeping, some think there could have been thousands. According to Andrea Lamb, a tour guide at the now um derelict facility families were often discouraged from contacting their loved ones who committed who were committed in the hospital quote they were told if they ever get a letter from them to never open it years of newspaper reports tell of weston residents complaining about hearing patients screams from outside of the 666 acre premises City officials finally decided it was time to build a new psychiatric facility in the late 80s and made plans to turn Trans-Allegheny into a small prison. In the end, the hospital closed in 1994 because of concerns about patient treatment never to open again. Unfortunately, many of the patients who had spent most of their lives at Trans-Allegheny were moved to other facilities only to suffer worse mental illness or die mysteriously shortly after. Despite being made National Historic Landmark wait, I'm sorry, despite being made a National Historic Landmark while still in operation, attempts to repurpose the building as a Civil War museum were short lived because of fire code violations. The mental asylum sat, sat more or less empty for ten years until the state auctioned it off for Joe Jordan, who was a private entrepreneur in 2007. After millions of dollars of renovations and asbestos removal, Jordan and his family repurposed the building for concrete events and haunted hospital tours. Today, they offer paranormal tours six days a week, an increasingly popular attraction since the building was featured on several ghost hunting shows. While many owners of old buildings repurposed as haunted houses have made some effort to promote the idea that the building is haunted, Trans-Allegheny's dark history does it all by itself. Rebecca Jordan Gleason, the building manager, said, quote, I don't want to believe in ghosts or the supernatural, but I've seen things here that are hard to explain in any other way. Most visitors never fail to experience some strange occurrences that they can't explain. Battery drainage, cold spots, voices, strange figures on heating, see, heat-seeking cameras. Many report hearing the sounds of gurneys being pushed down the long hallways and screams coming from the electroshock area. Other insist they saw full-body apparitions of patients wandering the hallways looking for help. Some ghosts still living in the hospital appear lighthearted, giggling, laughing throughout the building. Others offer clear and ominous warnings to get out. Visitors of the hospital sometimes feel ill after departing, overcome with the shakes and lightheaded feeling, almost fainting. The majority of ghost sightings throughout the hospital appear to be unique, which isn't surprising considering the vast number of people who lived, suffered, and died at Trans-Allegheny. There is, however, one boy in particular who was seen over and over again standing immobile in the corner of one room, no ma'am. Grant Wilson of the Atlantic Paranormal Society claimed to see this boy as well, but got more of a show than others. He said the apparition put his hand over his head, looked looked like he was being sucked out of the room one other ghost affectionately named jacob looks like the soldier and is often seen wandering around the civil war wing while freaky things regularly occur throughout the old hospital everyone agrees that the fourth floor is the most haunted of them all strange sounds banging voices and whispered conversations can be heard on the usually empty floor ghosts up there like to keep visitors on their toes once glee, Gleason witnessed 40 open doors on the 4th floor hallway slam at once. Oh, fuck. 40 open doors slam at once. Yes. So that was loud as shit. One would be pretty scary, Gleason said. 40 at one time? Terrifying. Um, That's that's it for that one, but also 40? Yeah.
1: Why are
0: there even
1: 40 doors in
0: one floor? But yeah. And who is shutting? Are they all like, Ghosts getting around. They're like, "All right, bitches, ready? One, <laughs> two, three, bam!" I, uh, I don't I mean like... to be lighthearted about that, but also, um, so a lot of the mentally, they said diabetes went. Uh-huh. I mean, I'm just went to the doctor for anxiety, so I would be sent there.
1: Yeah, or just like I don't know, having Down syndrome or AIDS, you have to go to a lunatic asylum. Yeah. No,
0: that's horrible. Yeah. Because we don't have those anymore, right? I mean, they have... What are those wards in the hospital called that they have now? Um, Psych ward is what they call them. That's like a better term. I remember... I don't know if y'all did this in um, high school, but the high school that I went to, you could um, like go shadow the job of your dreams when you wanted to graduate. And one of my friends, she went to the hospital and she wanted to work in the psych ward. Now, she didn't want to do that when she got older, but she was like... If I'm gonna do it, like I'd let's just do something fun, right? So she went there and she volunteered and she said there was this girl who had claimed to be um possessed by the devil. Uh And she said when she went into her room the whites of her eyes were black and Uh, she was like she was like vomiting and screaming and she was like literally like I don't think I can be here any longer But she said like the lady just looked like out of this world scary and she was like yeah i need to go home <laughs> so that's insane
1: is that foreshadowing for our haunted episode next week
0: no we're not going to do one next week
1: we're not
0: i mean we can we have two murders next week that we're doing
1: oh that's true so but we're we going to do-, do
0: we're going to do two murders next week and then we'll do a haunted one the following week right it's going to be haunted either well, well, we'll let people on Instagram decide which one they want to hear.
1: Yeah, because I, I either have, like, a coworker one or I have a fiancé one. So there's either one that's, like, by jealousy or I have, like, a, like a jealous lover.
0: For your murder? I think so. Oh, okay, yeah. Yeah, oh. I thought you meant for the spooky episode. No. Yeah, no, we're either... We have, like, haunted woods. We have real exorcism stories, all sorts of stuff. So we'll... We'll let y'all decide on Instagram, but go to our Instagram, Misery Manor Podcast. Like, rate, review, subscribe if you ain't got nothing nice to say. Bitch, shove it up y'all ass and don't fucking do nothing with it. Thanks for listening, everybody. Next week, we'll, we'll upload one on Tuesday and we'll upload one on Thursday. So that way we're not doing them back to back. And we'll have two murder, like I said earlier, we'll have two murder stories for y'all. So stay tuned, get caught up on our stories, rate, review, subscribe. Be a Patreon if you want to, and we will upload the pictures of the t-shirt designs that we have soon. Are I'm they still... going to
1: vote on them? Or they're no, both... they can
0: just pick which one they want.
1: Oh, we're going to have multiple?
0: I mean, which ones they like, and we'll just take the one that's most popular.
1: Okay, so they are voting. Okay,
0: bye. I thought you meant voting on which one they want, in pre- like, for themselves. Oh, no,
1: like for us to make.
0: Um, bye! Sleep with the lights on, spooky little bitches. Bye-bye!